This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. We are in the penultimate week of this series. This is the second to last night in Hebrews, which we've been in for a good portion of this year. So turn in your Bibles. We're going to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to wrap up the chapter. There's a book that we're going to be doing for sure as a book of the month uh, at some point soon called Pilgrim's Progress. It's written by John Bunyan uh, maybe 500-ish years ago. And other than the Bible, it's the number one most printed book of all time. So none of the famous books that, that you've heard of have ever outsold Pilgrim's Progress. And it's an allegory. And you follow the main character, whose name is Christian. Everyone's names sort of represent their characters. And Christian is on a long path to get to the celestial city, to get to heaven. And we follow him in the highs and the lows and his failures and successes and persecutions. One of the things that's cool that happens is when Pilgrim or our pilgrim named Christian, when he is saved, he is given by two angels a scroll. And it's a, it's a certificate. It is his recognition that he is a member of the celestial city. And he carries that on his journey all the time. And it's at some of the worst points in his life, at some of the lowest lows, he takes the scroll out and he reads it. And it reminds him of who he is, of where he belongs, of his citizenship. And it's something that isn't going to come. He's not going to become a citizen of heaven. He's not going to become a member of heaven or become saved or become a son of God. He is currently on the journey right now, and he has the scroll to prove it. He's already begun his eternity now. And he has a fulfillment to look forward to. He will, after he crosses the river of death, he'll go up to the gate and he'll knock on the gate of the celestial city. And let me read, I'll just quote it directly from the book. It says, then I saw in my dream, this is the author Bunyan, and he's talking about the book as if it's a dream, that the shining men told the pilgrims to call out at the gate. And the pilgrims are Christian and his now best friend uh, named Hopeful. When they did, some of those above looked down from the gate. These pilgrims have come from the city of destruction for the love they bear to the king of this place. Then each of the pilgrims gave his certificate, which he had received at the beginning. These were carried to the king, who, when he read them, said, Where are these men? To whom it was answered, They're standing outside the gate. And the king commanded the gate to open. Now I saw in my dream that Christian and Hopeful went in at the gate, and as they entered, they were transfigured. They were dressed in garments that shone like gold. They were also met by those who gave them harps and crowns. The harps were given to offer praise, and with the crowns, they were tokens of honor. And then I heard in my dream all the bells of the city ringing again for joy, and that it was said to the pilgrims, enter into the joy of your Lord." What a beautiful picture of coming into the city where they already belonged and they had the certificate to prove it. Our author tonight is going to remind us 
that we hold the certificate. Those, if you're a believer in here, if you've been saved by Jesus, if you've repented from your sin and made him the Lord of your life, eternity has already become a reality now. You don't have to die to begin your eternity with the Lord. It's begun today or at the day of your salvation. You're already a citizen of heaven. You're already a son or a daughter of the king of kings. It's begun now. And our author is going to remind us, and he needs to remind them of this because they are dealing with persecution. Right now, we don't really have a whole lot of persecution. Our hardships are maybe sicknesses or the loss of loved ones or, or struggling for the next grade or, or many different things. But they're under persecution. They're in a society that people hate them because they love Jesus. And there's this pressure to go back to Judaism, to go back to what they came out of because Judaism is legal. Judaism is accepted. That's where their families are. And so they're, they're constantly under this pressure to want to leave the church, to leave the body of Christ and go back. And from chapter one, our author is arguing with them, saying, no, there's nothing to go back to. There's no hope back there. It's empty. It's vain. It's been fulfilled. It's done. To go back to that becomes a man-made effort to save yourself. To go back to that is to reject what Jesus did, to reject what he did on the cross, to reject his love. Don't go back. There's nothing to go back to. And so tonight is our author's last appeal. He is begging his readers one last time with one last vision of why they must hold on to their faith. They must endure to the end. They cannot go back. There is nothing to go back to. And so that's his first point is there's nothing to go back to. Don't look back. And then his, his second point is get a glimpse of your current reality. And then the third is look forward. So here we go. Let's dive in. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to begin in verse 14. Last week, he reminded us that we are sons and daughters of the king. And with, right on the heels of that, he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So let's stop right there. We'll come back and read some more in a little bit. But right here at the very beginning, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is the goal of the marathon of the Christian life. This is the goal of Christian as he is the pilgrim on a journey to the celestial city. This is walk in peace the best you can with the people around you. Walk in love and walk in holiness, the, that attribute that gives us peace with God. Because if we don't walk in peace with God, we're going to miss out. We will not be able to inherit what God is giving us. We will not see the Lord right off the bat. The critical issue here for them is that they're having to decide. Because the society around them is saying, you can't be at peace with us as long as you keep following the Lord. Do you see the pressure they're under? They have to do their best. He's saying, do your best to walk in society in a way that you have peace with people around you. But realize this, 
to, to have division with people in society, yeah, you're going to have strife and contention for a little while in this life. But if you don't walk in peace with the Lord, if you don't walk in holiness, if you don't have communion with the Lord, that separation, that division has eternal consequences. Strive for this holiness and realize that their community is against them. They're having to endure, to hold on to their relationship with the Lord. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. I love this because he's saying, now turn and look around at each other. You guys, it's as if he's saying right here in the room, like pay attention to who else is in the room. Now hold each other up. Link arms with each other. Don't let each other slip away. Don't let, it, let each other slip back into doubt or, or slip back into sin or, or begin to question if this is the real deal. No, hold each other up. Hold each other accountable. Lift one another up. We're a community. The Christian life is never a Christian life of singleness. It's always a, a Christian life of community, the church body working together. And so he's saying right here, he's saying, see to it. Go to work. Take the task on yourself that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And then he uses this interesting phrase, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And my first glance at this, I thought it was talking about like bitterness between people, like, hey, let's not create dissensions or divisions or get angry at each other. And, and I think that's absolutely true, and we have plenty of scripture to support that, but that's not what he means here. He's actually, just like he does over and over again, he is quoting a phrase from back in Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy 29. Um, I think this would be worth looking at together. So this is the fifth book in your Bible. So if you were to cut in your Bible in half and cut the front half in half, so you're holding the first quarter, you should land pretty close to Deuteronomy. If you're in Joshua, go left. Deuteronomy 29. Moses is coming towards the end of his life and he's challenging the people of who they will serve. And our author in Hebrews is challenging us. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to try to live at peace with society? Or are you going to live at peace with God? And so he's quoting Moses here. And he wants to remind them of this whole sermon that Moses gives, this whole speech that he gives, because it's laced with encouragement and with challenge. So let's take a look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 29. We're going to begin in verse 16. Listen to what he says. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt? This is the generation that came out of Egypt. And how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone and silver and gold, which were among them. So he's saying, look, we've seen a lot of other cultures. Think about all the detestable things that they worship. They're worshiping rocks, stuff that people made with their own hands. Verse 18, beware lest there be, lest, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from Yahweh our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root of bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I'll be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Yahweh will not be willing to forgive him. 
but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man and the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. These are the verses that our author Hebrews wants us to remember. That root of bitterness, he's saying, is a root It's a seed. It's this thing growing inside of us that tempts us to want to go back to sin, that desires to go back to comfort, back to safety, back to what is satisfying. And Moses is saying, don't look back. Because if you choose to go after these other idols, if you choose to go back to what is safe and secure and satisfying, back to your old ways, God will punish by giving you exactly what you want and he'll close the door behind you. This is strong language. Our author of Hebrews is bringing to the table very strong language. Then on the heels of this, he gives us an illustration and he throws our minds back to Genesis. Verse 16, for you have, I'm sorry, verse 16 that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So who's an example? He's bringing out Esau as the example. Esau was sexually immoral because he married pagan women from another nation that didn't know the Lord. And then he was unholy, which means that he was not set apart for the Lord. He was, he was sinful. He was worldly. He, he, was, he was following himself instead of the Lord. And he sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So y'all remember Abraham? He wanted to have this son. And God finally gave him a son in his old age. His name was Isaac. Isaac had two sons. They were Jacob and Esau. And they were sort of like twins. But Esau was the older one. And Esau was a man of the field. He was an outdoors man. He would have loved Louisiana. And he was like all in for being out there. And because he was such a good cook and because he was so manly, Isaac loved him. But Jacob was kind of like, I don't know, he was kind of a stay-at-home and read-a-book kind of guy. And his mom loved him, but God had spoken to his family and said, your younger, Jacob, is actually going to rise up and the older is going to serve him, Esau. Now one day, Esau comes in from the field and he's been hunting and he's exhausted and he's tired and Jacob happened to be home cooking. And when Esau comes in, y'all probably already know the story from Genesis, He smells the good food that Jacob is making and he says, give me some of your lentil soup, your bean soup, or I'm gonna die here. And Jacob says, fine, brother. You know how you're the oldest and everything, so you get more of the inheritance than I do? Swap with me. Give me the blessing of the firstborn and I'll give you a meal. And Esau wanting nothing more than to satisfy his momentary desires, foolishly agrees, and they make a covenant, they make or a pact, they make a promise, they seal the deal. And so Esau is going to live and have to face up to his father that he's not going to get his birthright back. And so when the day comes that his father is going to bestow the blessing and a part of that is the birthright, this whole switcheroo happens, which is going to take way too much to explain. But Jacob steals it from Esau. And so Esau has been doubly in the loss. He's 
traded away his birthright for soup, and now Jacob has stolen his blessing. And so Esau pleads with his dad, there must be another blessing. Give me a blessing too. But it was too late. It was done. Esau didn't repent before God. He just really wanted the blessing. That's what, that's what it's talking about when he says that afterward, he desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He sought the blessing with tears. He didn't seek repentance with tears. So we have this example of Esau. He made a decision he couldn't go back on. He sold his blessing for a temporary satisfaction. He was, it was a foolish, impulsive decision, but it had life long implications. Why is Esau a great example for what he's talking about? Because he's saying, Christians, listen up. You in the church, listen up. If you decide to go back to your old ways, you're making a decision you can't go back on. If you go back to what's comfortable, if you go back, if, if you have a momentary desire for the sin of denying Christ and you act on it foolishly, there may be no time for repentance. God may give you exactly what you want and let you chase what your heart desires so much. It's scary, but it's a call. This is his plea. This is his, this is his strong language to, to, to call them to endure, to not give up, to not go back to sin, to not go back to the things that are weighing them down. Hang in there. He had already talked about this in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. Back in 6, it says it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have fallen away to restore them to repentance, since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to contempt. And Jesus says it like this in Luke 9, 62. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If we are going to reject Christ for the sake of our own sinful desires... And God's going to give us exactly what we want. This should motivate us as Christians. But you know what? It should go further than that. This should stop becoming so solo, and it should motivate us to look around and say, who in Elevate is struggling? Who in my friend circle needs to be encouraged? Who is struggling with doubt? Who is struggling with sin? Let's hold each other accountable. Let's lift each other up. Let's lock arms. Who's your accountability partner? Who's going to kick you in the butt when you need it the most, when you're tempted to go back to sin? Who's going to encourage you whenever you're feeling worn down and run under? Look around. Let's fight for each other. Let's fight with each other one step of the journey at a time to endure. I need that in my life. I have people that call me to the carpet. I have people that I look to that I ask questions of. I have I have people that I look up to and I have peers. One of them that God put in my life was my mom. She's so sweet. And if you knew my mom, you'd realize that she's, so, she's like a drop of sunshine walking around. Like she's just wonderful. And I remember one time I was at this, this conference at my university. And there's a lot of prayer going on and prayer for people's being healed and stuff. And way down at the front row, there was a, like a motorized chair. And this poor young man was so debilitated. He was never going to have a full life. And I saw people come from different aisles to come pray for him. And everything in me grieved because I, I couldn't understand 
why a good God wouldn't right then on the spot heal him. Why a good God wouldn't, wouldn't have him be born healthier. Like I just, it, it, it just grinded everything in me. And so sitting there with my parents, I got up and I left. And I just went out in the foyer and I was just like, I'm, I'm angry and I'm frustrated and I'm pacing. And out comes my sweet mom. And she could see that I was frustrated. And so she comes to me and she asked me what's wrong. And, I, and I'm angry. I pointed back and I'm like, I can't understand why our God who loves so much is going to leave. I know none of their prayers are going to be answered with yes. I know he's going to come. He's going to leave as, as debilitated and crippled as he came in. And I don't understand this. And my mom, in her sweet way, took me by the shoulders and looked me in the eye with a cold, dead stare. And she said, how dare you challenge God's decisions? <laughs> Yes, ma'am. Like we need people in our lives that whenever we're tempted, whenever we're angry and we're pacing and we're shaking our fists at God, we need someone in our lives that loves us enough to say, let me grab you by the arm and we're going to do this together. Or grab you by the shoulders and say, get it together. Let's remember who our God is. Let's remember that all things work together for the good of those who love him. Let's remember the promises that he's made. Let's remember together who is that in your life. Because if you don't have someone like that in your life, Begin praying right now that God will bring them and put yourself out there. We need to walk together. So don't look back. There's nothing to go back to. In fact, there's only wrath in rejection of Christ to go back to. And now let's, let's glimpse, let's peek under the curtain and see the reality of what we're living in now. Verse 12, oh, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages would be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble in fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that bears a better word than the blood of Abel. Ooh, this is so good. You guys ready? Again, he's, he's looking back to the Old Testament. He's digging into something, stories that they all knew, stories that their parents told them when they were growing up. He's looking back to Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 20. God had called the Israelites out of Egypt. He saved them, remember the plagues? And he brings them to Mount Sinai and God did something big. God told Moses, talk to the people and tell them, I'm gonna make them my special nation. They're gonna be my treasured possession, but get them ready. Have them set apart. Go through these holiness things. Go through these cleansing things because my presence, I am coming. I'm going to descend on Mount Sinai and make sure you set up a barrier around the mountain. And if anyone, whether it be a person or whether it be an animal, if they touch the mountain where I've descended, don't even touch them. Don't even put your hand on that animal or that person. Stone them. Why? Because it's better to be stoned by man than to face the wrath of God and disobedience. And God's presence manifests from heaven on Mount Sinai in fire with this flaming 
cloud descending on the top, circled in black smoke with this thundering sound that made the mountain and the earth shake. And then this blaring noise comes out of this fire and cloud like a trumpet sound and gets louder and louder until they hear the voice of God speak. And it's at that moment that Moses is quivering in fear that the people are on their face terrified. And they're, in fact, they're so scared by what they're seeing and by what they're hearing. The voice is so piercing right through their souls that they beg Moses not to let God speak any more to them, but asked if God would speak to Moses and then Moses would speak to them. They were mortified by the presence of God. God was unapproachable. There's this infinite distance between God and man, even from his own chosen people. This blood covenant, this first covenant that God establishes with Moses reminds them every day that they're not worthy to be in God's presence. And then shows them that through the blood of a sacrifice, God could dwell in the middle of their camp, but only one person could still go in before God, the high priest, for a couple minutes a year. They weren't worthy. The first covenant, this this show on top of the mountain, is quaking them in their sandals, reminding them they're not worthy to be with God because of their sin. He is unapproachable. But then something happens. Jesus brings a new covenant and everything changes. Verse 18, for you've not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg for no further messages to be spoken for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble in fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God with the heavenly Jerusalem to innumerable angels in festal gathering, but you have come. It's a wonderful transition. Things have changed. The tone has changed. No longer is it fear and trembling because God is unapproachable. It's come closer now. It's joy. What kind, of, what kind of gathering? What's happening with the angels? A feast gathering, a party gathering. The angels are celebrating. This isn't fear and trembling. This is a party that we're being welcomed to with this whole holy Mount of Zion. It's no longer Sinai, fear and trembling. It's now Zion, the temple where people could come and know his presence, where the, the curtain was ripped so that the Holy of Holies is no longer walled off from the rest of the world. And get this, this idea of Zion is layered with beauty. Again, our author is so smart. It's so much fun. Mount Zion was the hill that they built the temple on, the place that was seen as heaven touching earth, God's presence with man at that temple. So whenever they would speak of the city of Zion, they were talking about Israel. They were talking about Jerusalem. Zion represented all of God's people. It represented Israel. And Zion had this this beautiful understanding of the here and now. But Zion was also seen as having this futuristic next world kingdom of heaven kind of thing. In Psalm 2 and in Psalm 110, God says that he's going to send his Messiah to rule from Zion. Then in Isaiah 62, I don't know if I have a slide, we'll turn. Do I have an Isaiah 62 slide? 
No, let's go there. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah. Cut your Bible in half and go right. This is fun. Underline these verses. Isaiah 62. I love this. You guys ready? This is so cool. I just about came out of my office and ran in circles with glee. This is what our author is talking about. Isaiah 62. This chapter is talking about a day that God's going to call the nations of the world to come to himself. Not just Israel, like the other nations are going to come to Zion. And God is speaking to those nations, telling those nations to speak to his people. That's the context. So he's saying, hey, all of you who are coming in, tell my people I said this. <laughs> you ready for this? Isaiah 62, starting in verse 11. Remember, if it's all capital letters, it's the name of Yahweh. Behold, Yahweh has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, that's Israel, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. They say that hindsight is twenty twenty, And it talks about this, this hymn, right? Let's check this out. Behold, your salvation comes, but salvation has, has a hymn. His reward is with him and his recompense is before him. So salvation is coming. It's going to be a person, and he's bringing reward, and he's bringing punishment. Did you know that it gives us a clue to who the Messiah would be? What does the name Jesus mean? Hindsight's twenty twenty. Jesus means Yahweh is salvation, or Yahweh saves. We have the name of the coming Messiah right here in the text, so we wouldn't even know it until we look back from the New Testament. Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. And who's he talking about? He's talking to his people. They're gonna be called the holy people. That's how he started out, remember? To peace with men and holiness with God. We can't see God without holiness. So what's God calling them? He's calling them the holy people. How do they become holy? They're redeemed of the Lord. How could they possibly be redeemed? Well, God sought them out. He went out and he brought his people from every nation and every tongue. Why? Because they are people that were remembered, that God will fulfill his promises. They're not forsaken. He follows through. So Hebrews comes to life when we look at these things. It's so fun. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the place where salvation's going to come, that he is going to come, this heavenly Jerusalem. So Zion is now escalated from just being a temporal place, from just being a, a normal place now to having this futuristic idea. Isaiah 60 talks about the city of the Lord. He calls it Zion. And he says this about it. He said, there's not going to be violence anymore. He says that the sun will no longer be your light of day, nor brightness by the moon, but Yahweh will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down. Your moon will no longer withdraw itself, for Yahweh is your everlasting light. And your days of mourning will be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting. 
This is the city of Zion. It's this futuristic thing that they can see right now. Oh, so fun. Verse 23. So they're coming to this this party gathering of, of angels, this Mount Zion, this place where the living God is. Verse 23, into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous of the righteous made perfect. It's looking forward to a time. We are the ones who are enlisted. We're the ones in the roll call. If you put your faith in Christ, that's your name. You're counted among them. You're the one who, who God has made righteous. That's why it uses the word righteousness and judge together because the people that are there get to hang out with the judge and not feel any shame. God made them righteous. They're the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. That's how this happened, the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is the one who established this. This is the covenant of get closer. Come to the king of kings. Come to the righteous judge. Come to the Lord your God. Jesus has made you worthy through his blood, through the new covenant. And I love this reference. We talked about the blood of Abel, I think two weeks ago. That when Abel was murdered, his blood on the ground was a testimony against Cain because his blood was innocent. So what does the blood of Abel speak? It says, Abel was innocent. Jesus' blood is even more important because his spilled blood is saying, my people are innocent. Because of the blood of Jesus shed, we are innocent before God, righteous and holy. Are you living in the joy of knowing that right now, today, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have come Past tense, it's already happened. You are a part of the city of God. You're a part of the kingdom of heaven. You are a son and daughter of the Father. Right now, the angels are singing and having a party. And when you worship, you're joining them in their festal song, their party song. You right now are enrolled in that kingdom. You hold the certificate in your hand that says, I already belong. And when I sing praises, when I rejoice, when I have thanks for the Lord, I'm already participating in my eternity. Now, heaven has begun. Heaven's where God's presence is, and his presence is in his people because you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's so beautiful. Whenever you read Pilgrim's Progress, and I hope everyone does in here, you're gonna see that in the darkest times of Christian's journey, you'll see him pull out the scroll and he'll read it. He'll remind himself who he is, what he already belongs to. Every one of us, if you're not now, it's coming. We're gonna have really hard times. What a hope and a joy to remember that we hold the certificate of the kingdom of heaven, that we already belong. That we're already a citizen. What kind of hope can God give us in any circumstance? This is temporary this, this mocking of people is temporary. This hardship, this, this challenge, this thing I'm trying to get through, this depression, it's temporary. I have hope, I have peace, because there's more. I'm already a child of God. 
And then our author takes us from peeking behind the curtain to see what's already true now. And he has us look forward. Remember, this is his last plea. He is pulling out all the stops. He's having his people, he's begging them to endure, to hang into the faith. Why? Because there's nothing to go back to. Why? Because if you peek behind, you already have the inheritance. And why? Because if you look forward, you have everything to look forward to. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken. That is the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Boy, we have so much to look forward to. But one of the things we have to look forward to is that everything that is not of God is going to be judged and removed. It's going to be rattled and removed. Again, he's quoting, he's quoting Haggai. And, he's, and Haggai is talking about this time of judgment when everything will be shaken. And he's adding on saying that God is going to shake things. He's going to test them. He's going to see what is eternal and what is temporary. Only those things that are eternal, or those things that are eternal must be of God. And those things that are temporary, that are not of God, they're going to be swept away. Gone. Second Peter 3.10 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Hebrews 12 and 2 Peter 3, they're looking towards a day of an uncreation. When right there at the atomic level, things are dissolved. Anything that is not of God is gone. And just like Noah and his family were saved by being in the ark, those who have made Jesus Christ their Lord will be saved by being in Christ, in the family, unified with the Lord, with his Holy Spirit inside. And when everything is shaken, it's his people that will remain because they are in him. They find refuge in him. So if this is the author's final challenge, then I need to challenge you just the same. Are you in the faith? Have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? Are you in Christ? Are you a part of the church? Not just living word church. Are you part of the body of Christ around the world church? Is he your father? Are you a citizen of that eternal kingdom? There's a man named Jimmy Moda. He was a Hindu living in England, and he converted to Christ. When he announced it to his family, his mother fainted. His father drug him from his home, and his brother prayed to the gods they worshipped that he would die. In fact, his brother told his parents that we would mourn his death, but at least our family would not be dishonored. At the time, 
that brother, Jay, was working on his PhD. He was brilliant in academics. And Jimmy reached out to him. Jay, if you're ever desperate and there's no one there to help you, remember that Jesus loves you and his hand is on your life. Call to him and he'll save you. Jay was furious and told him that they would never speak again. Click and hung up on him. Well, one night Jay had a dream and in his dream, he was awake in his bed and there was a light so bright that it pierced through the ceiling of his room. And in the light, there were three figures. One blew a trumpet so loud that the entire world could hear it. The second one said to the world, prepare yourself. The Lord is coming to reap the harvest. And the third swung a scythe over the earth and said, the earth is now ready to harvest. Jay couldn't wake up from the dream, but he tried because he thought he'd have a heart attack from fear. But then in the light coming through a cloud, in fact, it was the one the light was coming from was a fourth figure. And Jay was mortified. He was so scared, in fact, that he turned his head away. He couldn't make eye contact with his figure. And he looked to see his brother, Jimmy, standing next to him. But it, Jimmy had an entirely different disposition. In fact, he looked hopeful, not afraid. He even raised his arms to receive the one who was coming out of the cloud. When Jay woke up, he woke up in a panic and he immediately called his brother on the phone to tell him the dream that he had. And Jimmy said, Jay, what you saw was the second coming of Christ. Can I send you a Bible? And then you can read about it for yourself. And Jay hung up on his brother again. Well, Jay received an opportunity to go and work in Japan, having finished his PhD. And he was uh, in a prestigious research opportunity. And his life kept going downhill. He kept having more nightmares and eventually he found himself at the edge of a balcony prepared to commit suicide. And at the last minute, he decided to find out if Jesus really was the true God. He pushed himself back from the rail and he began to read the Bible that Jimmy had sent. And when he came to the end of the gospels, when he came to Jesus's words, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jay prayed for forgiveness and converted to Christ. He joined a church. He began to teach and preach. He even went to seminary so that he could preach the gospel, the very gospel that he once hated. As we're wrapping up the author's final appeal, I want to challenge you the same way that he's challenged his first readers. Don't look back. Don't return to sin. There's nothing there but judgment. We're called to encourage each other, to lift one another, one another up in the body. We need to recognize that our eternity has already begun now. We can live that way in our worship. We can live that way in our obedience. The day is going to come that God is going to judge or remove anything that is not of him. And only those who are in him will remain. And oh, what an incredible hope that we have. We must endure with that hope. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to serve you, for the opportunity to open your word. I thank you for the opportunity to share your word with one another. Lord, let us be a people who lives now in the reality of eternity. Father, we surrender ourselves to you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus. Jesus.